Right, welcome. Good morning. You are at the Boone Center for the Family Lecture Series here, and I am delighted to welcome Dr. Len Matheson uh, for us this morning. And Len is a neurorehabilitation psychologist who was a professor at Washington University for a number of years, recently published a book, Your Faithful Brain. And uh, Len is actually a friend and mentor to me from my days in St. Louis as a student, so it's especially fun for me to have him here today. And Len has a Pepperdine history himself. He was a student at Pepperdine before the Malibu campus, so back at the downtown campus. Um, and this is, as I understand, Len's first time right. on the Malibu campus here. Um, so Len is going to present on parenting and leading for character development and brain health. So please give him your attention and Thank welcome you. Len. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm actually a wavelet. My, uh, my dad was an undergraduate in 1948 and I was a year and a half old toddling around the old campus. So I couldn't toddle around this campus, it's just too steep, but back in South Central it was okay. I'm delighted to be here. Um, this is a, um, a home, this is a community that is very, very special to me uh, because I came back to Pepperdine uh, after a very troubled adolescence. I came back to Pepperdine when I was uh, 21 years old after not doing well as an undergraduate. And um, part of my redemption, both spiritually and emotionally, is intimately tied up with Pepperdine. And I knew I was back at Pepperdine when my wife and I drove in off of uh, Malibu Canyon Drive and the security guard, I'll put security in quotes because he said, hi, welcome. <laughs> it wasn't like, uh, can I check your ID please? And he was sincere, it was just delightful. My first day back on campus, back in South Central LA after having such a troubled undergraduate uh, elsewhere, was um, marked by uh, a, an experience that was salutary for me. It really began me back towards God, towards emotional health. Um, because as I walked from where I had just signed up for my classes at the psych clinic over to the, the um, where I needed to pay, to, to the bursar where I needed to pay for my tuition, uh, I had seven people say, hi. And that hadn't happened on this other big campus that will go unnamed. It's very famous, but uh, nowhere near as friendly. So the attachment that I have, as you, some of you stuck around, or sticking around after, after uh, Kelly's talk, uh, secure attachment is, is exemplified in the, for, my, for me anyway, in the Pepperdine experience. I just, I'm really delighted to be back and participate and feel that again. Today we're gonna to be talking about uh, character development. And I'm gonna be focusing on character development. I'll talk about brain health as well. My background is uh, about 50 years now, working with people with brain injuries, uh, very serious traumas, uh, really bad things that happened to people. I started out with working with teenagers uh, who had really serious problems. And one of the things that I noticed as I worked with these teens over the years, and I followed some of them, uh, now a few of them are old men, like me. Um, one of the things I noticed about them was the difference between the kids 
who spectacularly crashed and burned after the brain injury and other bad things that had happened to them, spinal cord injuries, things like that. Or the kids who did really well and have become successful adults in every way you can imagine had to do with character. And I started to recognize that very early in my career. And a lot of it had to do with how they were parented. Now, we talk about character and we don't really have many ways to put our hands around it. And I want to give you a couple of ways uh, today to do that. And I think I gave, there's a handout there. Can I get one of those handouts? Is there one? I'm going to uh, introduce this to you and you take it home. I actually want you to use this uh, in the bathtub tonight um, <laughs> when you're reviewing our marvelous experience here to get yourself started in doing something that's a tool that I use with my clients, with my students, having to do with character development. In order to get there, I need to introduce a new idea to you called character strengths, introduced by two really um, important people in, in American psychology, uh, Chris Peterson and Martin E.P. Seligman. Martin, Marty was the uh, president of the APA of several years ago when he introduced the idea of positive psychology. And this is their, their hallmark book, talking about character strengths and virtues. They identified 24 character strengths and organized that into six different virtue categories. They founded the Values and in Action Institute, which is a very important entity that's an international um, program to help people develop character strengths and move forward towards a higher quality of life. And they've, they've got, I think the last time I looked, they had about 2 million participants. So it's a huge, I think 123 different countries, huge enterprise that I want to introduce to you. We'll do. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. So, one of the, the important issues that um, Peterson and Seligman identified has to do with what's the difference between character traits and character strengths. Character traits have to do with what most of us do most of our development during adolescence. We have a lot of character traits that we develop, and some of those get moved on into adulthood, and so we're known in, ter in terms of our per uh, particular character traits. Character traits is where most of us have started in the past, uh, uh, psychologists looking at character and personality and so forth. Peterson and Seligman introduced the idea of strengths, which is character traits, but they improve the quality of life. They are, so there are things that, that actually move you forward in terms of life to the full, to the degree that they are present in your life. Character traits can be positive or negative. Character traits, character strengths are always positive. I want you to keep that in mind. That's really useful. Those of you who are counselors, um, character strengths is a really useful way to look at people who might otherwise be quite troubled. Uh, if you're working with clients professionally, you really have a lot to learn, uh, help your clients learn, and a really, really safe space within which to help them grow if you're focusing on character strengths, which is an idea I want to share with you today. With character traits, there are many exemplars of people who have different character traits. We can think a look, 
take a look every morning in the paper for people who are famous, who've got certain character traits, they're known for certain aspects of their personality. Uh, there are a lot of examples of those. There are very few paragons of character strengths. The paragon is a person who, you, you can't think of a person who does this particular character strength better. And that's an important issue to consider. Now, in the Character, character Strengths and Virtues textbook, they did a lot of really good work, but Jesus doesn't appear very often. The name Jesus shows up four times in the book. He is used as an exemplar only once, and it's in a, it, it's okay. Uh, but it, it, it hurt me when I read that. I went through that and I got, I, this, this book has been an important addition to my professional career, but it really didn't fit very well with my integrated spiritual and professional and personal life. So I use it as an important text. I would encourage you to take a look at it, but just realize that it's, it's missing something. And the Values in Action movement, which is a very powerful movement, from my perspective, is missing something. So when I, about 15 years ago, started to take a look at that mismatch, I was, I was moved to do something about it. I really wanted to do something about it. I'd been working with character as an issue for 15 years, actually 35 years at that point, and, and recognized how important it was and how important this idea that they've given us about character strengths. But missing Jesus as, as, as part of the, of, of the formula? No, that didn't work for me. So I wrote a book called Your Faithful Brain Designed for So Much More. Actually, this book took a long time to write, five and a half years, because I really wanted to integrate <clears throat> what I knew about neuroscience and what I was experiencing in faith. Not just my own personal faith journey, but the faith journey of so many of my clients over the years. And one of the things I was seeing as a person who gradually became a Christian psychologist, and a Christian neuropsychologist, was that the people who had an active relationship with Christ did better in spite of horrible trauma than people who didn't, just generally speaking. And it's a huge uh, potent effect as we take a look at that. So I wanted to do the best I could and make this accessible. This is not a textbook. I did use it as a textbook when I taught later at Covenant Seminary with my master's students, but that's because I wanted to sell books. Um, um, it's a good compilation. I think you'll like it. It's written, though, for people who are not uh, neuroscientists. It's written for, actually, I wrote it for my, uh, my son. And uh, when he read it, he says, oh, that's why what would Jesus do is such an important question. And a bomb. Thank you, God. <clears throat> Some friends of mine and I founded something called the Faithful Brain Institute. And <clears throat> kind of as a counter to the Values and in Action Institute, although we haven't gained much traction. We aren't very good marketers and businessmen, so we're kind of, it was kind of a labor, it is a labor of love. But one of the things that we've done with it is develop some strategies for faithful brain counseling, working with men and women with issues that are very serious, depression, anxiety, uh, some of the, the real serious mental disorders, uh, serious traumas, working with couples, doing what we call faithful brain counseling with these folks, and that's what's laid out in the book. We also developed something that, one of which I've handed to you this morning, called the Character Strengths Rating Scale. This is an instrument that I use in my counseling and I teach my counseling students to use with their clients. I'm gonna use it with you just a little bit here. 
We used it to, as part of a psychological uh, study of Christian character strengths. It was important to me to be able to start to move, to make some headway into the Values and Action Institute's approach that wasn't Christian, uh, that kind of, it, it did ignore, it, for the most part, ignore Jesus. I wanted to make some headway, and so I, I decided, well, we need to do a, a study. We need to do a, a serious psychological study asking the question, how do Christian character strengths relate to quality of life? How do Christian character strengths relate to quality of life? Every weekend we hear from our pastors that that's the, that's the case. The Bible makes the case that that's the case. But, but can we actually demonstrate that scientifically? And I thought, well, yes, we can. I'd had a long career in academic medicine. I'd retired from academic medicine and took this job at, at Covenant Seminary um, back in St. Louis, uh, teaching graduate students in counseling. And my own experience as a professional counselor and also as a, just a client of professional counselors was that this was true. Christian character strengths do relate to quality of life in a positive way. But that may raise a question in your mind. What are Christian character strengths? Is it, how do we deal with that? How do we actually operationally identify Christian character strengths? What we settled on after several pilot studies and a lot of work is using an instrument like this, this instrument in, in the major study, um, and asking people to rate themselves, compare yourself to Jesus. Now that's jarring for a lot of people. Some people it just goes over their head, oh, okay, I can do that. Um, it's an important issue for us to grapple with, each of you personally to grapple with. If you are a counselor, it's a fantastic position to take because your clients will not be able to say about themselves as they compare themselves to Jesus that, oh yeah, I'm a 10 out of 10 or nine and a half out of 10, I'm right there. You just, I mean, if you're serious about it, no, well, I'm probably out of 10, I'm probably out of three. Well, if you're comparing yourself to Jesus, that's actually okay. And Jesus tells you that. The Bible says that. The Bible welcomes you in and says, you can be a three. My, I, I'm, I, I, can, I am going to make you perfect. Come in and join me. Come in and be in a relationship with me. Come in, be, come in and be in a secure attachment with me. And I love you out of your weakness. So, and in, and in counseling, if you're working with clients who are, for instance, very depressed, and they come in and they, they rate themselves twos and threes out of ten across the scale, um, they look at that and, and the, the, folk, the, the people who, who are kicking the tires with their faith or people who are actually deeply engaged in their faith, they both have a positive opportunity, they look at it as an opportunity, to get more deeply engaged with God, to revive their prayer life, to get involved with the church again, all these kinds of positive things that we get out of participating with God in this adventure that we call life. And so there's a lot of positive to be gained there. Now, if the person is comparing themselves across 24 character strengths to the president or to uh, Abraham Lincoln or to Mahatma Gandhi, or pick, pick all the different people that you can take as um, famous, some of whom are paragons, most of whom are just exemplars. They're not really at the top of the uh, curve. 
uh, then they, they start to feel less than. And <clears throat> I could never be as rich as, or as famous as, or whatever. But comparing yourself to Jesus has no downside potential and a lot of upside potential across a very broad range. And later on when we've got time to sit around and talk, talk about this over a cup of coffee, I want to share with you some of the other ideas. But I want to, I want about that if, if, you're, if you're interested. But I, we need to go forward with this. We don't have that much time. So we laid out something called the Life to the Full Survey. We, we, de we developed an online survey, 72 items, with the 24 character strings, Christian character strings, 48 other items. We, uh, the, the statistics that we were going to use, some advanced statistics, required that we have 960 um, subjects altogether. It's a big study, big, big study, one of the biggest that I've been involved with over my years, looking at the relationship between quality of life and faith practices, healthy brain habits, and character strengths. So um, we, we went out and looked for funding, got shot down, shot down, shot down, no funding. This was the idea of comparing yourself to Jesus is not a very politically acceptable idea right now. And um, I, I have a great, I've got uh, good credentials in academic medicine as a, as a psychologist and doing some things with good uh, grant funding and, and so forth. But I couldn't get any grant funding for this. So we said, okay, we better talk to our wives and see if we can fund this ourselves. And so my wife Mary, who's here, uh, said, go for it. Um, my, my partners, uh, Tony and Mark, their wives said, go for it. So we spent the next year and a half unfunded doing the study. We actually were able to identify and, and have participated 976 people. So really substantial response. Good response from both men and women. Um, it was amazing to us that only 85% of the people were Christians. You think that comparing yourself to Jesus, okay, well that just that leaves out Jewish people, that leaves out atheists, that leaves out you, you know, you name it, Muslims, Buddhists, not true. Jesus is famous enough in all those communities. In fact, in the Muslim community, he is a, um, he's very highly revered. In the Jewish community, they're not sure what to make of him, but he's, he's famous. He's a good Jewish boy for a lot of the folks that I know in the Jewish community. So uh, they were able to participate in this, <clears throat> excuse me, and we got some great data <clears throat> and I've got a frog I need to take care of here. This is what we found. We found that several of the factors that we looked at were positively related to quality of life. We, we looked at faith practices and found four of the uh, 24 faith practices were positively related to quality of life. I thanked God for creating me. I took time to seek God's purpose in my life. My life has meaning and purpose. And life to the full is a combination of my physical, mental, and spiritual selves. People responding to those, the question was, in the last week, to what degree do you find this has been true in your life over the last week? It was a rating scale for each of these, one to four, one to five, depending upon the construct. And so to the degree that people answered these in, in the higher level, they had higher quality of life. So that's a simple correlation, and that's a, that's a good way to start a research project. 
Looking at healthy brain habits, we had 24 healthy brain habits we asked people about. These four were related to higher quality of life. I met my commitments. I, I asked for and received emotional support from others. This is in the past week. I read holy scriptures and they calmed me. I got at least six hours of deep and restful sleep each night. Now, if you take a look at those as healthy brain habits, some of you are going to think, wait a minute, how does reading holy scripture be a healthy brain habit? Part of what we can't talk about now because we don't have time, but I'm going to propose to Kelly that she puts into her work in the future, is that the neurobiology of what you're doing with your relationship IQ and the neurobiology of reading the, the Bible is solid. There's terrific neuroprotective factors that occur as we calm and read holy scriptures. And then the six hours of deep and restful sleep is absolutely crucial. When Kelly asked me, uh, how'd you do last night? I, I told her this morning, as, as, as Mary and I showed up, um, I got five sleep cycles last night. I'm always looking for five sleep cycles. I don't always get five sleep cycles. I'm usually about four. Five, a sleep cycle is about 90 minutes. If I get six sleep cycles, I'm dangerous. Five sleep cycles, I'm just fine. Four sleep cycles, I can do okay. But I got five, so I'm, I'm, I'm really here and ready to go. Six Christian character strengths were identified out of the 24 as being demonstrably, scientifically, statistically, significantly, and some, and, two, and some of them really potently highly related to quality of life. And I'm going to share some of that with you later. Hope, vitality, leadership, curiosity, perspective, and kindness, all of which. Now, these character strengths, 24 character strengths in the, um, in the work that Peterson and Seligman have done, all 24 of them are highly related to quality of life. In this work we've done, taking a look at Christian character strengths and looking at faith practices and healthy brain habits, six come up. Now, this is very useful for us. It's not that those other 18 character strengths aren't positive. I'm not saying that at all. It's that from a counselor's perspective, from a, um, a parent's perspective, which six should you really be paying attention to as best you can? And these are the six, along with the healthy brain practices, healthy faith, faith practices and brain health fitness practices. So these are the, I'm going to present these to you as the six that we're really paying attention to. Hope, expecting the best in the future and working to achieve it, believing that a good future is something that can be brought about. And you have these all here, by the way. All, I've given these all to you. If you take a look down through, uh, hope is the second one down in your, on your sheet. The research that we did moved us from a 10-point rating scale to a 5-point rating scale. A good, it was a good, one of the good outcomes of the technology of our research. The next key character strength is vitality, going down a little further. Approaching life with excitement and energy, not doing things halfway or half-heartedly, living life as an adventure, feeling alive and activated. These two, kindness and leadership, are a little bit further down in the next quadrant there. Kindness is doing favors and good deeds for others, helping them, taking care of them. Leadership, encouraging a group of, one, of which one is a member to get things done and maintain good relations within the group. Organizing group activities and seeing that they happen. Now, I'm going to keep going through these. I want you to start thinking, where would you be in, in relation to Jesus? Taking a look at, for instance, um, kindness. 
How was Jesus in, in doing favors and good deeds for others, helping them, taking care of them? He was a paragon. On this five-point scale, would you rate yourself as a one, two, three, four? Could you go up to five, or would you just aspire to five? That's an, that's an important personal question for you. And I'm, I, those of you who are parents or are planning to become parents, I want you to take this to heart because to the degree that you can demonstrate that in the way you live your lives, not just teach it, but demonstrate it, you're going to be able to help your children develop these crucial Christian character strengths. Going on, down in the last quadrant there, curiosity, taking an interest in ongoing experience for its own sake, finding subjects and topics fascinating, exploring and discovering. Perspective, being able to provide wise counsel to others, having ways of looking at the world that makes sense to oneself and other people. So before we go any further, let me just point out something that you just might have gone over your head just a moment ago. The, this is organized into three different sections. The top section, we talk about it being vertically integrated. The top section has character strengths that are closely integrated with your faith journey. We call it vertically integrated with the idea that we're integrated with God. And these are the first ones that I deal with in my counseling with clients. These are the ones I start with. I want to have everything that I do in terms of developing character strengths be within the context that God provides us in a relationship with God. So the first two that you saw there, um, I have to go back and remind myself, I get into all of them. Vitality and kindness, excuse me, hope and vitality are in the top group. The next two are in the next group, which has to do with your interpersonal your relationships, your attachment to others. So you've got attachment to God in the first group, attachment to others in the second group, and then intrapersonal is in the, in the third group. And if you're a counselor, keep, it, keep that in mind because you really do want to encourage your clients to come from a top-down approach if you can. So how do character strengths develop? I'm going to ask you to do this with me in just a moment, but I want to explain something to you before we, we get there. This is a, a representation of the neural network, neural networks in your brain. This is a neuron being actuated by an axon coming into another neuron onto the neuron cell body. The neuron has dendrites coming out of it. If you're a person in your early 40s and relatively healthy, you've got about 100 billion neurons in your brain. If you're four years old, you've got about 200 billion. I'm at age 72, I'm on the downswing, I've got about maybe 82 billion. Oh, never mind. I'm making the most of what I've got left. Now, what's happening here is that this is slowed down 1,000 times. The, um, each neuron in your brain, each of the, let's say, 100 billion neurons, has 3,000 to 60,000 connections, depending upon the type of neuron it is and where in the brain it is. So we say on average that each of the 100 billion neurons has 10,000 connections. Now, each of those connections fires intermittently 
There are 38,000 trillion operations per second going on in your brain. 38,000 trillion. And the number of possible connections is a word I, I invented many years ago called Godzilla. And the reason I invented that word, my pastor loves to use it, is to make the point that only God can fully comprehend what he has created. We are just barely touching. I, I spent the last 15 years of my academic career at the Washington University School of Medicine, sort of the Human Genome Project Center. Human Genome Project has uh, a system that's set up to study the mouse brain that has reached its maximum capacity in terms of uh, its ability to store information. It's, it's gone on from that to start to study the human brain, but it's only able to study a very small segment of the human brain. And so, God's up to the chore. And that's why I use the word Godzillion. I don't expect, what I want to do is to focus in on one part of the, of the brain that's really crucially important to helping ourselves, helping our children develop character strengths, and that's the hippocampus. I'm going to put this down. Put your hands out like this for a moment. Put your thumb over as far as you can, and then wrap your fingers around and put your hands together. Now, these are the two hemispheres of your brain, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. The top part of your brain is the cerebral cortex. This down here is the limbic system. The, limbic, the, the cerebral cortex is your thinking, volitional, this is what I want to do with my life, planning kind of brain. Down here is your emotional brain, your limbic system. The, the, uh, hippocampus is right here, part of the limbic system that touches the bottom of the cerebral cortex. Right here at the top of the tip of your thumb is your amygdala. It's your fight or flight or freeze warning system. And the amygdala and the hippocampus have a lot of connections. An important part of what we do as counselors is helping people at that connection learn not to be afraid of everything, learn not to have PTSD reactivity by helping people change the junction between those two parts of their brain. And we do it with counseling, we do it with practice. And one of the things I'm going to do with you right now is to, is to move you uh, towards making some changes in your hippocampus. So you need to know a little bit about the hippocampus. It's where all the information that's going into your brain right now is stored for a few hours. A little bit of it, a little bit of it will be available to you tonight when you go to sleep. A little more of it will be available at lunchtime when you talk with people. But it gradually drops off. And then a lot of it's most of it's lost. It's the, the hippocampus is the first stage. Thanks. The hippocampus is your first stage for learning. That's Mary. Mary, stand up and take your <laughs> So all the information that goes into your hippocampus stays there briefly. It'll, and it's where neuroconsolidation starts. Neuroconsolidation is a fancy word that has to do with the networks that were being fired there. Some of them get strengthened because they fire frequently. Networks that aren't being fired there become weak. And actually, if a, if a neuron is not used very much, 
it actually dies. Almost all the neurons that you were born with, when you were four years old, you had 200 billion neurons. When you get to be 96 and say goodbye to this, this planet, most of those neurons that you had at age four, excuse me, most of the neurons that you died with were around when you were four years old. You will add a few neurons as you go along, but not that many. Now, what happens between age four, 200 billion neurons, and age 25, if you're a male, 23, if you're a female, with the drop-off of neurons and the, the ability of the brain to mature, the brain develops from back to front, from top to bottom. Female brains complete that development about two and a half years earlier than male brains. So the ability of the thinking brain to control and integrate uh, the actions of the emotional brain doesn't actually get done for most men until they're 25, to, for most women until they're 22. And a lot of the, the, the development has to do with pruning neurons. So as you go from age two, three, or four up until you're 25, you're, you're losing a lot of neurons that you aren't using. And that's why so much character development takes place in your adolescence. And much less of it as you get into adulthood. But you can still do it. You can still do character strength development, and I'll be doing that with you in just a moment, in adulthood. The key issue I want you to take away, though, is that the hippocampus does most of its work at night. Neuroconsolidation, it's, it's active during the day, but the neuroconsolidation part of it mostly takes place at night while you sleep. So Paul had it right when he said, do not conform anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can attest, you can test and approve what God's will is for your life, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I tell people who will listen to me that he was the first neuroscientist because he got it exactly right. He didn't miss a piece of that. That's, that's, and, and I could get up on my soapbox. I won't because we don't have much time. But question I would pose to you, how can Carl or, or Sally or Frank, Frank or Alice support Christian character formation? By doing the healthy hippocampus exercise. I call it the healthy hippocampus exercise for normal folks, my students, you folks. When people come to me who are severely depressed, and that's the signal issue that people come to me for, real serious depression, suicidal depression, um, I call it the happy hippocampus exercise because I want to jar them into realizing they have some significant control over interacting with their depression. And this is it. Bring three episodes to mind about how you were more whichever character strength you want to develop today than yesterday as you go to sleep. Bring three episodes to mind about how you were more courageous today, uh, merciful today. Pick a character strength you want to work on and work on it for 30 days, 30 nights, and you will see changes in the character strength. Now, part of it is harnessing your hippocampus, but that's not all of it. The bigger part of it is changing your behavior because three episodes during the day where you were different in that particular character strength than the day before is a cognitive behavioral therapy approach, sneaky one, to bring about behavior change that brings about attitude change, that brings about changing your values and beliefs. So who would like to volunteer with me to have their hippocampus changed?
Yes, please. What's your name? Vince. Vince, you can stay there, Vince. Taking a look at, at the um, character strengths rating scale now. And if you wouldn't mind uh, identifying one or another that you're fairly weak on that you'd like to develop, something you'd like to work on over the next month. Okay. When it, where is that? Right in the middle of the, the first section. Letting one's accomplishments speak for themselves, not regarding oneself as more special than one is. And where would you rate yourself in terms of humility? Uh, a one or a two. A one or a two. So you'd like to become more proud about being humble? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> My personality is that of a two. Yeah, that makes sense, sure. Um, and I'm well aware of that, so being, being more humble would benefit my daily life. Excellent. And you're probably right. And, and you know, Paul talks about that a lot. And uh, so I'm glad you're, you're picking that. That's wonderful. Thank you for doing that. Vince, right? Yes. Okay, so um, what I'm going to ask you to do, Vince, is to, today identify three episodes in which you're more humble today than you were yesterday. And as you get ready to drop off to sleep tonight, along with your gratitude prayers, along with getting yourself ready to have a good night's sleep, I want you to bring the three episodes to mind where you were more humble today than you were yesterday. Okay? Now, let me point out that you've already selected one of them. Right? Did everybody notice that he's already got one up? Okay, so it's relatively easy to get one. He's wondering, what, 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 what? Well, you opened yourself up here. You were humble about who you are and your need to develop something that's important to you. So you're one or two uh, now. You've got one uh, example of how you're more humble today than you were yesterday. Through the day, you're going to need to come up with two more examples. Now, that's not just something you have to think about. That's something you actually have to do. And so as you get ready to go to bed tonight and you've come up with one more, so you've got two now at 7 p.m. this evening, but you've only got a couple of hours before you're dropping off to sleep, you've got to figure out what's the third one. And that's going to bring about behavior change that the first week or so is going to be a, a bit uncomfortable because you are already low rated on humility. <coughs> um, you may you're probably going to have to manufacture a humility task and do it before you drop off to sleep. And it'll be difficult for the first couple, first week or so, first couple of days, maybe up to a week. But you will get, e it'll, it'll get easier, you'll get better at it because you're actually developing the neural networks that support humility in your brain. And you'll be absolutely amazed that, that the combination of your behavior change and the people around you are gonna notice it. It'll make it easier for you to be expected to be more humble and they're going to probably like you a lot more, be more, be more comfortable in your presence. And that will reinforce your new humility behavior. And that, that day after day after day will create neural networks that support humility. Now the reason 30 days is important is that um, you are still creating new neurons in your brain. Guess where? In the hippocampus. To go from a stem cell to a full-fledged working neuron takes 21 days. And so a new, a new neuron, a humility neuron is being birthed in your brain right now. 
Not many, but a few. And over the next three months, most of the time, you'll, you'll, you'll do this each night. That humility neuron, that new baby neuron is going to be recruited to be part of Vincent's humility neuron network. It's going to take you on through the rest of your life. Okay, some ideas or questions, concerns? Yes, please. Yes, pick one to work on for 30 days. Part of it is that you need to be convinced that it works. But part of it is that it's a lot of work. Um, and one of the things you'll notice, by the way, Vince will notice, is that the, uh, in each of the categories, the uh, constructs kind of hang together. So as he improves his humility, some of the others that are in that same area begin to improve. Uh, his faith is probably going to improve because humility is an important part of our faith journey, isn't it? And it's probably, Vince, as you take a look at wanting to develop humility, I imagine the mismatch between your lack of humility and your faith journey has been something that's kind of motivating you to pick humility as a, as a construct to work on. Yeah, I would rate myself a little bit much higher just because I, I have that, I believe that I, I, I minister, that's my oh, life. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, very good. Well, and your kids are going to feel just more, much more comfortable in your presence. You're, 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 don't you think? Yeah, I think you're going to have a lot of opportunities to demonstrate that uh, when you go back to work. So, a question over here. Yes. What if you have a client that just, I mean, I have one that's stuck, and they, you would ask them a question like that, and they'd be like, I can't think of anything. I'll wait. Would you mind, what's your name? My name is Lindley. Lindley, would you play a client? Okay. And pick one, uh, pick a uh, category that you, that your client would, like you want to work on. Or what you think you would work on. want to work on? Um, maybe, um, uh, gratitude? Gratitude, okay, read, the, read it out loud. Be aware of and thankful for the good things that happen So, uh, what's the client's name? Samantha. Samantha. Samantha, the first thing I'd like you to do, beginning tonight, is to include gratitude prayers as you drop off to sleep. Now, uh, who, who are you going to pray? Who are you going to thank God for tonight? Maybe one friend. Okay, uh, that friend's name is Sally. Oh, so you're, you're okay. So your prayer tonight. This is you're making a promise to me, a commitment to me. Now, you're going to pray. Thanking God for Sally's presence in your life. Great. I'm glad that I'm glad that you're going to do that. Uh, now, during the day, is there going to be an opportunity for you to get in contact with Sally? Probably. Would you Would you be willing to send her a, a, maybe a, a text? Would that be okay? Just say, I'm just so glad that you're my friend. I guess I can do that. No, I don't want you to guess. I'm really asking you to make a commitment to me. It's really important. This is behavior change. That's going to change you for the rest of your life, make you the person that God wants you to be. I know she's so stubborn, she'll say no. <laughs> so, she says no. Are, are you still, are you really wanting to bring about change in your life? I hope so. No, I, I don't want you to think. 
So much for coming, yes or no? Um, yes. That is a very hesitant yes. Could you demonstrate to me by bringing about some changes today okay. that, that that's true? I mean, you and I have a good relationship. I'm really challenging you here. I don't want you to be real angry with me, but I, I don't want to let you slip away. This, this is a really important opportunity. Yeah. So um, let's go back to Sally. Okay. Would you be willing to make commitment to me to text Sally and tell her, thank you for being in my life? Okay. You will do that. Okay. Now, I wonder if you'd be willing to follow it up with a phone call to Sally. That would be hard for me. What if Sally were to call you? Would you answer the phone? Yeah. Would you be willing to make a commitment to me to answer the phone if Sally calls you? Yeah. Good. Now, what's the hesitancy between you calling her and her answering the phone when she calls you? Do you think she might not answer the phone? Well, let's just stop with two today, then. I want you to just go ahead and have a successful day, and then when you go to sleep tonight, I want you to be able to, to thank God for Sally and, and appreciate that you've done these two things to bring about a change in your behavior, okay? And, and I, want you to, I want you to do that and report back to me. Now, depending upon the recalcitrance of the client, I don't want to push the client so hard that I lose the client, but I also don't want to waste the opportunity. And so I might just start her out with, um, well, I, I, it's very, very rare that I let them just do, a lot of clients just do one a day. I want to challenge them to do two. So I might not go to three right away with her. But play it by ear. Sure. But you, because you want it to be a, a success experience. Yeah. You've got to take the client where you find them. Right. Okay. Any other thoughts about this? Yes, please, Anna. Can you say more about the Christian Say more about your question. So uh, it strikes me that, um, and this isn't perhaps not as good nor bad, it strikes me that anyone could do this, right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of their beliefs or faith commitment, mm -hmm. and that it would be a positive thing for them. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious if there's something in particular that a uh, relationship with Jesus brings to this practice or permits or empowers about this practice. It really has to do with what Christianity means. I think a person, let me, I'm gonna give you two answers that are both true. Um, and this is, I've, I've done this with some of my Jewish clients. We have a fairly large Jewish community among the uh, faculty at uh, two of the universities in St. Louis where I uh, was practicing for years. And um, so I would have Jewish physicians and other professors come in and I would work with them, and I'd use these strategies. Um, depending upon where they were with their own faith journey, and usually, um, I'll give you an example of a fellow who came to me because his father had died. He was just all broken up that he was, had such a, this relationship with his dad, and he never told his dad he loved him. And his dad never told him how proud he was. This was a very famous physician in, um, in the country, really. A real expert in uh, pediatric oncology, and his dad, had never said, I'm really proud of you. And um, so his dad died. He was just crushed by, by all this. Um, and part of, of what I did with him was, well, part of it, not the whole, but was to go through this. And um, 
I, I think I, I think he picked kindness. Um, I don't know if you can imagine how kind a good pediatric oncologist has to be. Well, I mean, you probably can. Is there a job that requires more kindness? Whoa! And he didn't. He rated himself like at a three. And or it was, it was back when we used the ten point scale, so it was like mid range something, <coughs> four or five. And so I'm thinking, Ooh, this is a mismatch. And so we went through it, and and I used the same system with him. Uh, I actually don't think we we referenced it to Jesus, which was okay. But he worked on it, and uh, over the course of the next, it what didn't take him very long. Over the course of the next week, he had these these three episodes. I mean, he had more than three episodes every single day where he was being extraordinarily kind. He came back in. I don't, I don't know what I was doing, and he, you know, re-rated himself at a higher level. So, it's sometimes just low. It's like low-hanging fruit for some people, even if you're not a Christian. Let me give you the other part of it. For a Christ follower who is actually a Christ follower, who really looks at Jesus as the leader. If we're followers, we've got a leader. And we want our leader to be a paragon. We are looking for a paragon. And if you take a look at the 24 character strengths, in fact, I had my, my students do this. You can identify, um, actually, we identified 560, I think it was, examples in the New Testament alone that related to Jesus uh, exemplifying these character strengths as a paragon. So it's easy for people to fall away from their faith this is a revigorization of the faith. Is that, if that's even a word? <laughs> Invigorating of the invigoration of faith. And it relates to our day-to-day -day life because we're actually asking people to demonstrate what would Jesus do? And I want to be more like Jesus. And then I want to go to bed appreciating, saying, saying in, in my prayer work before I drop off to sleep, Feeding my hippocampus with information that, that is not going to have competing information that I was more kind today than I was yesterday. Or I was more whatever, vital today, more merciful today, more courageous today. So the, the Christian life gives us an opportunity to turbocharge this technology. Um, and it, it allows us, because we're using Jesus as our standard, to have a paragon that's unquestioned and forgiving. So even if I rate myself low and I'm just in the, in the suicidally depressed and I give myself ones and twos bumping along the bottom, I, I'm still, if I'm a Christ follower, if I can come back to Christ, consider maybe putting God back in my life, um, a lot of good can happen out of that and not much bad. I do a lot of work with combat veterans. Combat veterans come back and often feel quite bad about themselves for lives they've taken. There's a moral uh, injury that has occurred. And so they'll come in miserable for lots of reasons, PTSD, brain injury, depression, but at the core is this, I'm just a piece of shit because I, this wasn't something I was supposed to do. They trained me to do it and I took all these lives and <clears throat> and there's no, there's no getting around that. Um, but Jesus is all forgiving. God redeems us through the sacrifice of his son. 
And if we can bring people back to that, and many people have been introduced to it as children, so we're reviving their, their spiritual life, then we've done a lot of good that's going to rebound for years to come. Let me just wrap this up by hitting on brain health and fitness. The same thing that happens with this sleep <clears throat> is an important part of um, what's called glymphatic clearance. That's a new term that was invented by some folks up at the Oregon Health Sciences Institute to talk about changes in the brain while we sleep that allow the extra proteins that have been developed over the course of the day to be drained by the cerebral spinal fluid. Each of our brains produces about half a liter of cerebral, cerebral spinal fluid every day. It's always producing cerebral spinal fluid. We had no idea why that was the case. There was, what's the, what's the reason for cerebral spinal fluid? For until about eight or nine years ago, when people started to take a look, we, we, could now, we can now visualize that the neurons that are active right now in your brain, because they're active, they're larger than they are when you're asleep. Yeah. Hmm. And so there's space between the neurons for the glial cells. You've got about 10 times as many glial cells that support the neurons in your brain, about 10 times as many. That take the glial cells do their, most of their work at night, helped by the cerebral spinal fluid. And, the, and there's a flushing that occurs. And so this issue that we have right now with people living long enough to get like Alzheimer's disease, which is the classic of about 50 different dementias, it's the classic dementia that has to do with uh, excess proteins building up. If you get good sleep, a lot of that is taken care of. And there's some new research. It will blow your mind. It's, you're going to start hearing about this in the next couple of years because we've been doing it on mouse models and now we're getting to a point where our technology is going to be the point where we can like, prove it with, or at least demonstrate it with human models. So brain health and fitness is crucially tied into sleep. It's part of my background working with brain injured people all these years. The difference between getting a good night's sleep and not a good night's sleep is readily apparent for the brain injured person. Any of you who work, who've been around people who've had serious concussions, if they haven't had a good night's sleep, they walk in the door and you know it versus if they have strokes the same way. People with Parkinson's the same way. I start with the child. Uh, child's gratitude prayers are crucial. Uh, the last few messages the child's brain should get are of love, safety, acceptance, um, encouraging more effort. All, all, you can take a look. At, all of these apply to children. Working with adolescents um, who've been childhooded that way is quite easy. Working with adolescents who are struggling in adolescence, we need to take, if they're willing to, be rational about things, take a more um, fact-based approach to encouraging, encouraging them to take some responsibility for developing their brains. Um, Kelly was talking about the pleasure centers in the brain uh, being accessed and uh, stimulated, overstimulated by social media in the, in the talk before this. Absolutely true. Um, and so we can't tell, tid, tell kids not to text, not to sext, not to do um, things on their, on their 
phones that they should not be doing unless we have a basis in fact. They won't accept a phone. You wouldn't back when you were 17 years, 16, 15 years old. But the basis is that now the technology, in terms of neuroscience, fits with faith. Paul was right. You, you cannot read the New Testament with the head on head on about neuroscience and not realize that, that, that this is God's plan. This, my faith came about out of neuroscience. Attending church with a very patient wife while I listened to pastors uh, talk about uh, the Bible, and I, I thought they were talking about neuroscience. I would go up afterwards and I'd say, did you know blah, 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 and their eyes would glaze over and they'd ask for the security device to come in close. <laughs> but I'm excited about this, and I wrote the book really to demonstrate that. Your faithful brain designed for so much more is the subtitle, because we are designed for so much more. If you don't get that, before you die, it's a, it's a loss. It, it, your faith is so exciting now because we know about how the brain actually was designed. So Lillian's, Lillian's mother, Casey, called me two days ago. My mom went in to see the doctor, and, and he administered the uh, Montreal cognitive assessment, which he has scored in It's a dementia screening scheme. And so he said, well, the doctor said, well, not looking too good. And so I said, and I gave Lillian the directions. And, and I've, I've known, I worked with I told Lillian, get back, get her back to sleep. Has she been sleeping well? Well, no, her dog was really sick for the past three months, and so she had to be up several times during the night because the dog, with, without being attended, would throw up her poop. So her mom's gone for three months taking care of a very sick dog. One of her best friends died. Uh, some other thing happened, and so I said, well, what do you think, what do you think about her sleep? Well, it's been terrible. And she went in and did the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, for me, there's a link between the two. And I said, well, then she probably needs to have her medications looked at in terms of the antidepressants she's on. She needs to be helped with sleep. But don't do a lot that's really drastic until she, she gets back to a good sleep regimen. At least for a person with a brain injury, or, and she's got, she's, she came to me because she'd fallen, had a concussion, and then were concerned it was actually dementia. It wasn't, it was this fall. This was about six years ago. But now she's, she's 70, 70 years old, so they are concerned about dementia. So I said, don't do much that's really dramatic until you really get to sleep. Be real serious about the sleep. And get five sleep cycles for a person with a brain injury. Or, or dementia, something that looks like dementia. You get problems with over-medication, uh, insomnia, that mimic dementia. I'm not saying people don't have dementia, it's a real problem. But it's exacerbated dr dramatically by not getting good sleep, and also by the improper use of some medications. So sleep apnea with oh, it's a big deal. Correct. Sleep apnea has to be dealt with. Okay, thank you. Absolutely. Okay, I think we've run out of time. Thank you very much. <laughs>